This is Macro Horizons, episode 127, Dash to the Doldrums, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 6th. And in keeping with the theme of the 4th of July, we'll offer the observation that U.S. rates continue to embrace independence from the economic data. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had several key inputs to contend with. First was it was the end of June, the end of the second quarter, and the end of the first half. In typical fashion, this resulted in a modest bid for Treasuries, bringing 10-year yields back solidly below 1.5%. In addition, we did see the employment report, which came in stronger than expected on the headline front, with an unexpected increase in the unemployment rate. However, the U6 unemployment rate, which includes discouraged workers, decreased, representing an improvement in the overall jobs landscape. We did see an increase in average hourly earnings, consistent with expectations. That should contribute to the reflationary concerns and leave the focus on core CPI, which will be released in mid-July. In the very near term, we remain constructive on the Treasury market, leaning less heavily on the seasonal factors per se, and more on the notion that we have received so many potentially bearish redefining events over the course of the first half, and still 10-year yields managed to remain below 1.5%. This speaks to a dynamic equilibrium in the Treasury market that suggests that the macro factors driving the outright level of yields have to do with the global recovery as opposed to being localized to the U.S. rebound. We've also seen a thematic grind flatter in the Treasury curve. This is consistent with a pivot in monetary policy that led to a modest backup in rates in twos, threes, and fives. Given that the move in the front end of the curve was a recalibration to the updated dot plot, we expect that there'll be a new floor for rates in the front end of the curve, while tens and thirties can continue to grind lower. Thus far, the positioning data has yet to reveal any grand capitulation in terms of the net short positions. To be fair, shorts have been covered and scaled back in a variety of sectors. We've also seen the Stone and McCarthy Real Money Survey show a similar dynamic. That said, what is absence is any push to being net long the treasury market on a collective basis. This leaves the pain trade decidedly as lower rates, although to a less extent, from a positional perspective than we saw throughout the second quarter. All of this contributes to our call to see an extended period of consolidation with 10-year yields spending the bulk of the summer in a range of 135 to 159 with a reasonable probability that an opening gap intends at 
121 to 122, gets filled before the seasonal pressures fully abate. So, Ian, how about that trade balance data? Yeah, I would say that the trade balance data was notable for a number of reasons, but really I think it was the non-farm payrolls report that struck people as being directionally inconsistent with the price action that subsequently emerged. We had a run-up into month-end in terms of treasury pricing. It was a classic bull flattener as people added duration. And frankly, I was expecting that we would see a bit of a give back on Thursday. And if not, then at least in the wake of the stronger than expected non-farm payrolls print. After all, we did see 850,000 jobs added. And that 850,000 figure now brings the three-month moving average of jobs creation to 570,000 jobs undeniably impressive in a historical context, although in thinking about the market's reaction, 570,000 is still shy of the more optimistic ambitions that were making the rounds later in the first quarter when we saw 10-year yields reach those high levels of 175 and 177. So June's jobs numbers were undoubtedly impressive, but at this stage with the enhanced unemployment benefits still a factor to consider, as well as investors' attention, I would argue being focused more on the post-Labor Day period, the quote-unquote repricing that we've seen in treasuries, which still leaves 10-year yields below 150, to me suggest an extension of the theme of ambivalence toward the economic data, at least for one more month. There's also the seasonals to take into consideration. We've been on about this notion that the treasury market does tend to rally over the course of the summer. And given the fact rates seem unresponsive to the developments on the economic side, this increases the relevance in the technicals. Let us not forget, however, that the Fed's recent policy pivot really underscores where we are in the cycle and that even under the Fed's new framework, they're still unwilling to risk any credibility as inflation fighters. And now that the dust has definitively settled since the June Fed meeting, their pivot, I would argue, is most readily observable in the shape of the curve. We've now seen 530s stabilize in a trading zone that we haven't seen in almost a year, which resonates with the underperformance of the belly as a function of the revised dot plot. But at the same time, in terms of the level of outright longer dated yields, we're at a meaningfully higher plateau than we were during the summer of last year. And this resonates with the idea that the front end and belly of the curve have repriced to the expectation of normalizing policy, while 10 and 30-year yields are higher as a function of the recovery, but not rapidly accelerating due to concerns on runaway inflation. I will note that the pullback in break-evens off of the highs is relevant when we think about calibrating forward expectations for inflation and also reflects the market's evolving understanding of how Powell and company will react in the event that what is assumed to be transitory inflation ends up being something more. Now, while there is very little on the economic calendar over the course of the next couple weeks, the highlight will, once again, be the June 13th release of core CPI. Given the increase in average hourly earnings that we saw in June, with the year-over-year pace at 3.6%, the bigger question becomes, have those wage gains translated into more demand-side inflation that should flow through to the economic data via core CPI? And to what extent will either A, pent-up demand for services, and B, more robust household savings profiles translate through to a surge in consumption now that domestically, at least, COVID restrictions are generally removed from most parts of in-person commerce. This again gets at that transitory inflation narrative. 
as the pace of economic activity associated with just turning the lights back on, almost by definition, can't be sustained over a long time horizon. So circling back to the idea of rates largely disregarding the economic data, the noise that we're going to experience in the fundamentals over the next several months is going to lend itself more to a range trade in treasuries than I think any definitive new trend, at least until the later part of the third or fourth quarter. The June employment report also demonstrated a few contrasting indicators, most notably the increase in the unemployment rate, despite the massive headline NFP game. Within the details, we also saw a decrease of the U6 unemployment rate from 10.2 to 9.8. Now this, as an alternative measure, includes discouraged workers, as well as workers seeking full-time employment, but settling for part-time work. The reason that this is worth highlighting is because it does show an improvement in the labor force, more consistent with the headline NFP print, but it's also worth keeping in mind that the household survey defines discouraged workers as not looking for work within the last 12 months. This implies that the discouraged category will be shifting out of the labor force altogether, which then accounts for a decline in the U6 unemployment rate. This is all a very long way of saying that the labor market continues to adjust to the post-pandemic realities, and these realities imply a continued evolution of the labor force overall. And there's going to be another nuance in the data to watch over the next several weeks, given the fact that the jobless claims figures are now going to start incorporating those states that have decided to pull out of the enhanced pandemic unemployment benefits, which still show just north of 10 million people. So again, the fact that some states are going to be having these programs, some states are not, and the interplay between this dynamic and the labor force participation rate is going to make interpreting the data over the later parts of June and through July and August fairly challenging. This is also consistent with the idea that the macro outlook has effectively been put on hold for the course of the summer. We continue to anticipate that September and October will really serve to define the next stage of the recovery. And while the macro outlook might be taking the summer off, so to speak, in our pre-NFP survey, there wasn't really a meaningful expectation that conviction this summer is going to be substantially less than summers past. On a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of investor engagement, the mean and median response was 5. And in addition to the scaled responses themselves, we saw several respondents highlight the Jackson Hole Symposium at the end of August as a top-tier reason why market participants will be at their desks this summer, at least as much as is typical for this point in the year. We also got a bit of an update on the Fed's thinking for the tapering timeline via Harker's comments, who noted that $10 billion a month of tapering over the course of the year is his expectation, and all else being equal, he'd like to start the process later this year. This elicited absolutely no price action, which I think is relevant because it's very consistent with what we have heard from market participants in terms of expectations. So if a Fed president can float such a specific trial balloon related to tapering and there's no price action, there's really no reason to expect that when we get the official announcement sometime in the fourth quarter that we'll see a meaningful repricing in treasuries towards higher rates. And while sure, Harker doesn't vote until 2023, the fact that he is a little bit hawk of center on the broader FOMC spectrum points to the more hawkish members of the committee advocating for a similar timeline. That is, tapering announced at some point in the third quarter, beginning some point in the fourth quarter, and running for roughly a year. However, on the more dovish side, we do have both Williams and Powell 
And while we have not yet heard explicitly from either of them on their preference for the structure of tapering, gauging the degree of dovishness off a Q4 start would put the chair and the New York Fed president's preference sometime in Q1, running for some time likely right around a year, which then would get us to 2023 and the point at which liftoff conversations are likely going to get louder. But Ian, exactly to your point, all of this is well known in the market. And yet still, here we have 10-year yields below 150. And 30-year yields right at 2%. 2%, 30 years. That's a long time. Yep. 30-year treasuries. The name is Bond. Long Bond. In the week ahead, the Treasury market has very little fundamental information to incorporate. We have ISM services, which as an indicator of the overall performance of the economy will be useful, but given that it comes after the non-farm payrolls print, it will have a much more subdued market impact than otherwise. There's also the FOMC minutes release, which will cover the June meeting and provide some context for how the Fed is currently viewing the risk that inflation proves to be more than simply transitory. In the event that the FOMC minutes reveal an even less dovish committee, that should be net bearish for the front end of the curve and allow for a continued drift lower in 10 and 30-year yields. With tapering talk now widely in the market and very little price action as a result, we'll argue that the Fed has done a very good job in avoiding a taper tantrum, and the market has now moved on to trading the next shift in monetary policy, which will be the liftoff rate hike. As a result, we expect that any strong economic data that the market does trade will primarily be focused in the belly of the curve. The five-year sector, as well as euro dollars, as the debate about the precise timing of the first rate hike continues. This implies that the 530s flattener will remain a viable trade as we progress through the recovery. And while some pockets of inflation are sure to remain, as long as monetary policymakers are characterizing them as transitory, there's little reason to expect the Fed to bring forward rate hike expectations even further or accelerate the tapering timeline. Anything that ultimately challenges that timeline, however, will be a tradable event, and it's within that context that we'll continue to follow the developments with the pandemic overseas as the global economy begins to slowly emerge from the pandemic. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with the Institutional Investor Survey kicking off on Tuesday, July 6th, we'll note that you can vote from anywhere. Please. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode, so please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts.
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.